Welcome back to the first episode of the Sly Hooper podcast in the 2021 new year. Brought to you by Blue Wire Hustle. We are back after a long holiday, a much needed holiday to close out the year. Still kind of a little bit, not on edge, but you know, 30% of the anxiety that I had on election day came back tonight as the Georgia Senate runoffs are going. And let's just say I'm pretty happy with what's happening so far. If one thing for future podcast episodes, usually don't get too political, but you know, sometimes if stuff calls for it, I will talk about it. And if you don't like my views or where I align, you can just listen to another damn podcast because I don't give a shit. So that's just a nice little disclaimer to start off on this first episode of 2021. But enough with that. Although I am, once again, I am very happy with the way things are going as it is right now. We'll see about the results tomorrow morning. But there are some results that are already in so far, and that's during the 2020. 2021 NBA season which could be honestly everybody's saying it and it sounds like hyperbole but I don't think it is really once as you now that we're nearly two weeks into the season it's safe to say that this could shape up to be the craziest NBA season ever it's tough to gauge teams right now there are a lot of there are a lot of blowouts the fans in the arena no fans in the arena is just a weird feeling and it's a little bit different than the bubble experience because at least with the bubble experience we knew that it was at least on the tail end of the season they were just trying to finish last season and also the way they created the environment presented it and all that stuff it just looked a lot more cooler maybe because the NBA was able to pull it off and the majority of us were impressed by it and so maybe so maybe that's why we found the bubble more fascinating I wouldn't say fascinating but definitely there was a different energy to those games than some of the games we've seen so far this year definitely there are some moments where fans are missed like with Steph Curry's 62 point legacy game <laughs> on on a Monday night or Sunday night excuse me I'm just kidding it wasn't a legacy game I already talked about this on the box out banter podcast with Chris Okamura but that was ridiculous but while it's early in the NBA season and while there is weirdness and more variability than maybe ever with this season in particular with the shortened season no summer league shortened training camps potential COVID cases that are coming down the road you already have had players set out we've already had one game postponed I do think there are some trends early trends that are developing that either I wonder will it hold up for the whole season or do I think it has a good chance to be a trend the entire season good and bad because I'm going to go into some of the bad as well but there are some interesting trends with teams among the NBA so 
Let's get into the first one. And of course, it wouldn't be my podcast if I didn't bring up my Philadelphia 76ers. But for good reason. Joel Embiid is on track right now, six or seven games in, for MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Giannis was able to do this last year. First person to do it since Akeem Olajuwon in the 93-94 season. And Joel Embiid is completely on track to achieve this feat. The Philadelphia 76ers right now are sitting at a cool 6-1. and one. On top of the Eastern Conference, and pulling up the stats right now on cleaning the glass, the Sixers have the best defense in the NBA by a long shot. They have a one hundred and they have a one hundred point five defensive rating according to cleaning the glass, which takes out possessions that are likely to end up in heaves because on NBA.com, the Sixers defensive rating is a 94.6, I believe. But either way, they are leading the league in defense by more than two points per 100 possessions. And that is solely because Joel Embiid is in shape. He's engaged. And now he finally has a roster that complements his skill sets and the right fitting players around not only Embiid, but Ben Simmons as well. And it has unlocked just a new level of Embiid's offensive game. Now, people are going to look at Embiid's stats and be like, well, he's averaging under 24 points per game. Um, His scoring rate is only slightly below what it was last year. And, you know, last year he was coming off of a previous year where he averaged 27.5 points per game. But even with... The low scoring output right now, just looking at it, surface points per game, which you really shouldn't. This is Embiid's best stretch as an offensive player that I have seen throughout his career. And I've watched almost every Embiid game, watched him a lot at Kansas, and this is the best stretch of basketball he's playing. He's averaging... 23.2 points per game, so more in line with his point total from last year, points per game last year. But, but, it is on a career high, 63.3 true shooting percentage. He is shooting 52% from the field when he hasn't eclipsed 49% at any point so far in his career. He's getting to the free throw line nine times a game, which is typical Joel Embiid. Needs to get that free throw percentage up, uh, back up above 80 but he's averaging 12 rebounds per game and he's the usual defensive impact on that end of the floor is just on absolutely absurd. So I have one more Embiid staff for you before I move on to the next trend, because this will, I will be going over five more trends and I'm trying to, I'm not worried about the length of this podcast, but you know, you got to keep it tight, you know, and uh, you know, if you, Major points, you move on. But one Embiid stat I did want to point out is, like I mentioned, the Sixers have a 100.5 defensive rating, which would be 
first in the league by a mile with Joel Embiid on the court. The Sixers' defense is... Internet is kind of slow right now. The Sixers' defensive rating is a staggering, mind-numbing 94.1 points per 100 possessions when Embiid is on the floor. So for those keeping score at home, the Sixers have the number one defensive rating in the league at 100.5 points per 100 possessions. But when Embiid is on the court, the defense has been suffocating. Now, there is the caveat they have not played the strongest schedule. The contenders are coming up. The schedule is going to get tougher. But there is something different about Embiid. He is embracing double teams. He's learning how to make the right read out of double teams now. And part of that is because the shooting around the Sixers' two best players has been upgraded, basically. Seth Curry is averaging over 16 points per game so far and shooting 50% from the three-point line. And honestly, that won't be sustainable, but the open shots he's getting will be sustainable because if you've looked at the game so far, Embiid attracts such an insane amount of gravity that anything he passes out of, and he's not going to get a lot, a lot of assist numbers, which is another flaw with the per-game stat, Embiid's assist numbers will be low, but it's the hockey assist and the fact that four guys are in his area at any time. So there have been a lot of times so far this year where Embiid will instantly kick it out to the top of the key because the guy is doubling down. And then it's a swing, swing pass around the perimeter. So Embiid sometimes won't even get the hockey assist. But at the end of the day, the an open shot is generated when Embiid is in the game. And if you look at his net rating, it is a staggering and fucking ridiculous 23.5 net rating when in differential when Embiid is on the court. Now, let's look at the defensive rating when Embiid is off the court. When Embiid is off the court, the Sixers' defense goes from a 94.1 defensive rating to a 110.9 defensive rating which would put the Sixers at 18th ahead of the Oklahoma City Thunder, who is 18th right now with a 111.1 defensive rating. Embiid has been fantastic. And if you look at the half-court offense, the offensive rating is like a 103, which it hasn't eclipsed 100 even in the three, year, in the three previous years. So the half-court offense is way better. The Sixers are demolishing teams they're supposed to beat, which they had a tough time doing last year on the road. The Sixers were incredible at home last year. But they have a roster that makes sense. Uh, Tobias Harris has been revived from the grave uh, thanks to Doc Rivers. Ben Simmons is still Ben Simmons. He's an incredible defender and a unique offensive player that is basically just has been the same player since his rookie year. But the Sixers now... They possibly have a contender on their hands. Now, there's big test with the other contenders, but one trend I do believe, and I said this before the season, and I ranked the Sixers as the third best team in the Eastern Conference behind the Bucks and the Nets. I said it before. I said it then. Embiid is a dark horse MVP candidate this year, and so far he is damn sure playing like it. And while he's averaging only 23-12, and 12, which was what he did last year, it's way more efficient. 
and it's the best offensive stretch I've seen from him. And defensively, he's back to when Embiid is engaged, he is the most impactful defensive player in the NBA. And that's real talk. Speaking of real, the Phoenix Suns' defense is for real. Now, that might not be something you were expecting to hear before the year started. The Suns are ninth in offensive rating, but they're clearly still trying to figure stuff out on that end of the floor, which is crazy that they're still 5-2 uh, and two and behind the Lakers for... Uh, first place in the Western Conference. They're only a half game back so far. It's early. Just another caveat. I know it's early in the season, but games are happening. So we have to talk about them and we have to react accordingly. And then I'll change my opinion once stuff gets more concrete, once we have more data, once we have more film, all that stuff. You know how this game works. But, you know, there's going to be. I'm trying not to overreact, but when there's games going on, there's nothing else to talk about. Just talk about what you see. And right now, I think the Suns' defense, as it stands, is going to be for real for the rest of the season. Their offense, they're going to figure out their offense. I have no doubt they're going to figure out their offense, which is only, which is insane because they're ninth in offensive rating per cleaning the glass. But if you look at the Suns' main lineup of Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, and DeAndre Ayton, which is their starting lineup... Their offense still hasn't really clicked yet. It's at a 112.9 offensive rating. It'd be in the 47th percentile, but they are also at a staggering minus 3.5. Now, I wonder, of course, there was the outlier game the other night where they were just getting demolished by the Clippers in the first half before they locked down on defense in the second half and made it a run, but... I have complete confidence that the starting lineup is going to figure it out. DeAndre Ayton is clearly trying to find his way on the offensive end. Defensively, he's been fantastic. And that's where we're going to go back to my original point. The Suns' defense is going to carry them to a lot of wins early in this season. And it already kind of has. Because if you look at it, you got Chris Paul, who was one of the best defenders ever at the point guard position. Devin Booker is actually starting to... You know, he's never going to be a great defender. He might not even be a good defender. Hell, he might not even top out as average throughout the season. But he's big, he's smart, and he could sit down in a stance. And when he's locked in, and now that he doesn't have as much offensive responsibility, he can lock in more often on the defensive end. And that is certainly a plus. Mikel Bridges has turned back into Villanova Mikel Bridges. He has, he has been awesome to start the year. And when I mean he's back to Villanova, Mikel Bridges, he was touted as one of the best shooters in the draft, one of the best off-ball shooters in the draft, and then he changed his shooting form right before the draft. It looked really bad. Um, He kind of had to regain his form there and was basically only taking like two threes a game uh, for the first two years of his son's career. And... Now he is shooting almost six threes a game. He's shooting 46% from three. He's averaging 14 points a game. And any scoring help, any scoring leaps Bridges takes, that's a bonus because he is just, he inhales people on the defensive end of the floor. I was watching the uh, Suns Jazz game last week, and there was a possession where Donovan Mitchell 
was dry. Well, first of all, Mikel Bridges had Donovan Mitchell in jail the basically for the entire second half, the whole game, but especially in the second half, there were just possessions where he just sent him to the shadow realm on some Yu-Gi-Oh shit. And Mitchell was driving. Mikel Bridges initially knocked the ball out of Mitchell's hands on the drive. And then Mitchell recovered and tried to throw up, you know, a little floater off the glass and Mikel just swatted it into oblivion. And the Suns were able to get the ball off the Kareem. He's been he's been fantastic. Jay Crowder is always going to be a solid player on both ends of the floor. We can quibble about whether he's actually a good defender or not. He's average. He's a big wing. He gives the Suns somebody to throw power to throw at power forwards when they want to go to small lineups. Crowder has been really good for them as well. And then you have DeAndre Ayton, who I have said I have pounded the table on this since his days at Arizona. His defensive flaws were always overstated to me. He will never have the rim protection instincts of a Joel Embiid or a Rudy Gobert. He will never be that type of elite defensive player where he can be really very good on that end and possibly be one of the key cogs of an elite defense is his ability to move his feet on the perimeter. He has always had good feet. He could stay in front of guards. And whenever he switched out on guards, it usually Aiton can hold his own out there. He's one of the few bigs in the league that can legitimately slide his feet. And Aiton has always talked about it. Like he always has talked about how he believes in, you know, his footwork on that end of the floor. And that's been a big that's been a big plus for the Suns as well. But then if you sub out Chris Paul, Javon Carter comes in. So you're going from Chris Paul pestering you for 94 feet and then you got Javon Carter who's physical as all hell and is an aggressive defender trying to pick you up 94 feet but then oh you sub out Mikel Bridges oh we're bringing Cam Johnson who has also taken a leap as a defender he won't ever be an elite one but he's pretty solid he's always in the right spot so so far this year and he has the he's a big wing. He has the tools to be he to hold his in on that end of the floor. The Suns just have a lot of players that fit well together, that make sense together, and they're just they're awesome to watch. And you know, um, I've always tangentially been a Sun fan because Suns fan because my homie George is a Suns fan himself, um, and. And I have always kind of rooted for the Suns because they were kind of going through tanking, though it was tanking because management was bad more than anything else before James Jones and his crew came in. Um, but if you just look down the line, if you're you're looking at NBA teams that are I – mean, when you look at NBA teams, you look to see how many solid players they have in the rotation. They're starting five solid. Cam Johnson – is a knockdown shooter. Javon Carter is awesome. Langston Galloway is an NBA player. Dario Saric always holds a special place in my heart, but he's not only a good passing big, he's a good connector. He kind of keeps the offense glued together, and he's a great locker room guy. I could tell you, you know, tracking the Sixers and following them, uh, especially during Dario's time in Philadelphia, teammates love him. He's, He's not... Not the heart and soul of the team in terms of, you know, putting them over at the top in a game, but like he brings the locker room together. This is just an awesome team. And with Chris Paul basically being the bow 
that ties everything together in the box. And with the West, honestly, I might have underestimated seeds 4 through 10 in the West just a little bit. The Suns could fuck around and find themselves in the conference finals. And that is just something that is awesome whenever it happens to a fan base that has been wandering kind of in the wilderness for a bit. You know, not only wandering in the wilderness, but having armor on because you're trying to defend the NBA Twitter crowd that was just throwing Devin Booker into the dirt. You know, labeling him as a empty calorie stack guy, which was always complete BS. It's ha- I'm happy for Suns fans, man. And I think that defense is for real. Maybe not as for real as Philadelphia's, but it's elite. And it'll and when they get their offense clicking, that team is going to be scary. Speaking of scary, love my transition so far. Devontae Graham may need to give his spot to LaMelo Ball ASAP. Devontae Graham has been struggling to start the year for the Charlotte Hornets. He took a leap last year, averaging 18 points per game after averaging only 4.7 his rookie year. He's mostly on three-point attempts. He took nearly 10 a game and shot 37%. Um, really, he also averaged uh, he also averaged seven and a half assists per game, so he could play make a little bit. Devontae Graham, though, as much as I've loved his improvement from rookie year to last year. He was always kind of one of those players where it was like, if you look at the Hornets young talent, is Graham anything home to write about? Like if you were, if teams called for Devontae Graham, how much value does he hold with the Hornets? And does he hold as much value as some of the other young players on the Hornets? Because he's not, He's not somebody I would write home about to build a franchise around. Like, we absolutely have to keep Devontae Graham. But he is young-ish. He's on a cheap deal. And he did improve. I don't think he's going to shoot this badly as the season goes on. But, my God, it's been abysmal. He's averaging 9.9 points per game. He's shooting 32% from three after finally kind of regressing to the mean in their game against uh, against the Sixers yesterday, out having a bounce-back game after he was abysmal in the previous Sixer game. He's not going to shoot that poorly, but there is a ceiling to Devontae Graham, and I think for that reason, while you don't want to bench Graham just for being bad, because I think the Hornets are, as a whole are bad, I to me, the, my focus would be on LaMelo Ball. Um, LaMelo Ball looks like he belongs out there, and like I was saying before, LaMelo Ball, he'll have... He'll have high upside plays that make you go, whoa, with at that size, with that handle and that vision... You can't pass up on that. But there's also the reality that he is kind of a boomer bust. But he belongs out there. And he'll have plays that make you scratch your head. And I think that's just going to be part of the learning process for him. And I think to speed up that learning process, Lamelo should be in the starting lineup ahead of Devontae Graham. Terry Rozier has been fantastic to start the year. 
Last year, he had a career year and kind of justified the contract he signed. He signed a three-year, $58 million deal. And, you know, the rap on him was you're really paying Boston's backup point guard that much money. Yeah, he looked good in the playoffs against the Sixers, but there's a, there's a ceiling to this guy. And also, of course, he was playing behind Kyrie Irving uh, the, the next year after that Sixers series and kind of struggled, especially because Kyrie came back from his injury. The previous year, Rozier in the 2018-19 season struggled a bit. Then the Hornets paid him that contract for the next season. And it was like, wait, what? Three years, $58 million? But Rozier in 2019-2020 averaged 18 points, shot 40% from three on way more attempts. And he's never going to be a great playmaker. I imagine he's always going to be in the four to three assists per game range. But that's why I would put LaMelo Ball next to Terry Rozier. That is actually, their skill sets complement each other quite well. Now, they haven't played a lot of possessions together to warrant a valid sample size to confirm this. But a guy who could shoot 41% from three, who has a score-first mentality. Right now, Terry Rozier is averaging 22 points per game. A career-high 59 effective field goal percentage although I imagine it won't be that sustainable he's shooting a career high on twos he's shooting 44 percent from three on eight attempts per game if Rozier takes another leap that's a legitimate scoring guard to put next to LaMelo Ball and LaMelo a pass first player a rebounder a guy who can also push the ball up the court so Terry doesn't have to do it all the time I actually kind of like that backcourt I thought I would love Graham and Rozier but one, that backcourt is too small. Also, even though I loved Graham's improvement last year, I question his ceiling as a player because he's mainly the majority of his shots come from three-point range. He's not really somebody who gets to the foul line, and also he's little. He'll get bullied on defense, and especially if the Hornets want any playoff aspirations over the next few years, I imagine if Graham is shooting like this or has a shooting slump at any point, if the Hornets were in a playoff scenario, he would get played off the floor pretty easily. So the Hornets aren't good anyway, even though they signed Gordon Hayward to that contract because they want to make at least the play-in tournament, I imagine. I would just start LaMelo Ball, get him the reps now. Honestly, if I were running the Hornets, I wouldn't have even I wouldn't have even paid Gordon Hayward. We talked about this before, but this next draft class is going to be really sick, especially at the top with Cade Cunningham. And if you're the Hornets... Lamelo and Cade is a better backcourt. I would rather have that backcourt for the next five to seven years. At least see what you have. I think Cade is a surefire NBA star. I've seen enough already. He's just going to be a really good NBA player with the potential to be a franchise-changing guard. And putting that next to Lamelo, that would have been great. But given the situation right now, um, I would definitely start LaMelo over Devontae Graham. The Hornets have some interesting pieces also with P.J. Washington and Miles Bridges, but, you know, you're starting Biombo at center, and it looks really thin, and especially now that um, Cody Zeller is out. And so you're going small more often, which 
honestly, it will just lead to poor rim protection. Um, already, the Hornets' defense is starting to slip towards the back end of or close to the 20 to 30 range. I think they are they would be ranked they would be ranked 18th right now. And I don't see it improving anytime soon. So I would just go in with all the young guys. Their small lineups have been their small ball lineups have been more fun. Um the Graham Rogier, Hayward, Bridges, Washington lineup has been fantastic. Anytime they go small without Biombo, it's I feel like it's come with better results. Um Borrego's a good coach, and so I will still be tracking the Hornets league pass wise, but even early in the season, it's time. Lamelo needs to start. We're gonna keep it negative here and talk about the Brooklyn Nets, who in old NBA overreaction fashion. We might have overreacted to their status as a contender a little bit. They're still a contender. Just want to point that out. Kevin Durant is averaging 28 points per game coming off of Achilles surgery. He is still the second best player in the world. The Nets are a contender. But it's not an air shut case that they could come out of the East. The East is looking a little bit more wide open than what we thought. Milwaukee's kind of been slow to start out of the gate. They're going to be fine. The Nets, even though they have some flaws, they will be fine. But let's talk about those flaws. So, the Nets did play tonight. So, the Nets did play tonight. They beat the Utah Jazz. Kevin Durant is in contact tracing protocol, so he's probably going to miss the next three games. He missed tonight's game, so it was the Kyrie Irving show. Who Kyrie Irving was spectacular. Jared Allen finally started, which honestly, we wasted our time with starting DeAndre Jordan all last year and then, you know, starting this year. I just think it's ridiculous that Allen got moved to the bench because he's been the better player. He's the younger player, and I would want my younger players to get reps. Um, but you know, the deal with getting Katie and Kyrie is you have to get you have to sign DeAndre Jordan too, and I understand that it comes with that. I just think if you look at how Dwight Howard has looked the last few years in a reserve role with the Lakers and now with the Sixers, DeAndre Jordan could easily be one of the best reserve bigs in basketball. He would feast on second units, in theory. But there are some concerning trends with the Nets that I feel like will be their downfall this year. And, you know, one of their downfalls this year is that, you know, it's all new like this. And also the season is weird. So new teams like this, you know, they need time to gel and all that good stuff. But um, there are a few factors where I think it will be their, their downfall. So the Brooklyn Nets, before tonight's game, were dead last in defensive rebounding percentage. And it shows up on in games, too. Like when you watch the games, you could see it's kind of true. The Nets will sometimes have a good defensive possession where they'll lock somebody down. Everybody's rotating and flying around, and then they don't finish it with a defensive rebound, and then the opposing team scores off of second-chance points or, you know, 
allows more shot attempts, et cetera, et cetera. The Nets did out-rebound the Jazz tonight, but again, the Nets shot the hell out of the ball. They shot nearly 56% from the field in a ridiculous percentage from three. Utah really didn't even, especially in the second half, Utah really didn't even, or in the first half, Utah really didn't even have a chance to get any rebounds because the Nets at one point were shooting like 70% for the game. So with the rebound, without rebounding the Jazz tonight, the Nets moved up from 30th to 29th with a 68.6% defensive rebounding percentage, which is only 0.3% above the Timberwolves, who stand in last at 68.3%. Clearly, and that's a team that is clearly missing one of the best rebounders in the NBA in Carl Anthony Towns. So the Nets' rebounding concerns me. They don't, And also, I am concerned that they do not have the defensive personnel to be an elite defense. They are 7th right now. They moved up from 12th to 7th last night. Again, defensive stats with this small of a sample size is usually a perilous task to try to explore. But the defensive personnel to me doesn't match this number. And I think it's going to go way down. I think by the end of the season, the Nets will probably be... The Nets need to be at least a top 15 defense for the offense to be so insurmountable that they're just an automatic contender. Or it's like, yeah, they're, they are most likely the favorite to come out of the East. But I need to see more. You allow a bunch of points to the Hawks in, back to, in your you know mini-series of back-to-back home games. One you won by basically outscoring them. And then you allow more points again against them and lose. You let the Wizards drop 123 points on you. They just don't have the defensive personnel to finish defensive possessions with rebounds. Their centers are also... DeAndre Jordan is kind of slightly washed, let's be honest, as a starter. Jared Allen, while I love him and he's more talented than DeAndre Jordan and has the potential to be a really good rim protector, he is kind of skinny. And, you know, he's definitely athletic and long, but there's just not enough rebounding roles for me to be confident that their defensive rebounding percentage will get better. And I also think their defensive rating is going to take a step back because, yeah, part of it is the Hornet, the weird Hornets game that they lost where they held the Hornets to under 100. That's a bad team. They blew out the Jazz tonight, which was pretty impressive, considering that they didn't have Durant. Spencer Dinwiddie, I forgot to mention, his injury is actually low-key kind of big for the Nets because while the Nets do have a deep team with a bunch of NBA players that could start on any team, I think, Spencer Dinwiddie was the one guy they couldn't afford to lose in the sense that they needed an extra ball handler so they can use Kyrie and KD in different off-ball actions, but now KD and Kyrie have to handle the ball more. Also, if Kyrie has rest games or gets hurt because we know his injury history, the Nets are kind of screwed. And you saw the Nets in the Jazz game, you know, play Tyler Johnson. They started Bruce Brown uh, opposite Kyrie Irving just to try to get some defensive juice in there and a little bit of passing. Bruce Brown had five assists uh, tonight, I believe. And I love Bruce Brown, by the way. I always love those Miami guards, Lonnie Walker and Bruce Brown. I love those guys, but um, I do have my concerns about the Nets. 
And also, I bring up the center stuff because somebody brought up a good point the other day. Um, don't remember the, uh, hate to do this in podcast host fashion where they're like, oh, I saw a tweet the other day. I hate, I forgot the guy's name. I'm sorry. But I am sorry. I don't remember your name. Um, I will remember that better when I find stuff on Twitter and need to cite it. But somebody brought up the point of, yeah, like a team like the Sixers, they don't have an answer for Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. No team in the NBA does. But do the Nets have an answer for Giannis, Embiid, who is the best big in basketball when right? Because if you want to look at the history, DeAndre Jordan doesn't have a very good history checking Joel Embiid. Giannis is the back-to-back MVP candidate. Bam Adebayo, you ever heard of him? And then, say the Nets get to the finals, how are you going to stop Anthony Davis? Nikola Jokic? Even DeAndre Ayton? So the Nets definitely have some glaring holes I'm concerned about, and I don't have them penciled in as coming out of the East yet. They're a contender. Not going to put them in the same category as the Lakers, though. It's a, The gap is it's the Lakers, then it's a gap, then it's the Clippers, I think, so far, and the Suns. And then, if you're talking ceiling-wise, the Nets would be in that net, that tier after the Lakers, but they have some very noticeable flaws that have already that I had concerns about before the season and are already cropping up early in this young season. Let's get into one more noticeable trend that I think is going to stay throughout the regular season, although with this particular player it won't matter for people until he does it in the playoffs. This is going to be the Paul George Revenge tour, although I was listening to the low post today with uh, Zach Lowe and Richard Jefferson. Richard Jefferson is fantastic, by the way. There's been a lot of good NBA media members to, you know, come over to the other side after they retire. There's been some bad ones, too. Not going to name them here, but Richard Jefferson is one of my favorites. And they were talking about this today, too. It's not really the revenge tour season for Paul George because people, again, want to see this in the playoffs. This is more the dress rehearsal because Paul George is borderline back to playing like the 2018-19 finished top three in MVP voting Paul George, where he was all over the court defensively, was putting up similar numbers to just take a few Kevin Durant seasons and compare them. I'm not comparing them as players. I'm not there is no way in my absolute right goddamn mind I'm going to say Paul George had better seasons than Kevin Durant in OKC. I'm just saying in the 2018-19 season, if you look at the numbers and efficiency stuff, especially before Paul George started tailing off because of the uh, shoulder injuries he was suffering, he was putting up numbers that were comparable to a KD season. And he is looking like that type of player again this year. Paul George is averaging 25 points per game. 
so far a career high in five uh, over five assists per game, five rebound over nearly six rebounds per game. He's almost back up to his usual uh, two steals per game. Um, right now he's averaging one point seven, and the numbers are the shooting numbers are just staggering. He is shooting a career high 67 and a half true shooting percentage. Obviously, that is not sustainable. But Paul George is one of the best shooters in the NBA, so I imagine he's still going to stay above forty percent. He shoot from three. He's shooting damn near fifty percent from three, which is wild. from the field overall, nearly 51% from the field overall, has been shooting 92% from the line. And in some ways, he's been better than Kawhi Leonard this season so far. So far. Now, this is the type of player I think Paul George is. At his best, he is the best 1B in the NBA. I know I made the joke on this podcast that, you know, I went and turned in my Paul George fan club membership. But I mentioned that that's only in the sense that can you build a championship team around Paul George as your best player? While the ship has kind of sailed that for that on me a little bit, he is still a top 15 to 10 player at his peak when he's at his best. He's one of the best defenders of the last 20 years. He is one of the best offensive players of the decade has turned himself into one of the better offensive players um towards the end of the decade I should say don't want to overstate it Paul George is fucking good and I want him to stay healthy before the playoffs because if Paul George is healthy and he's right the Clippers are going to look like the team that we all thought last year because Honestly, while Paul George definitely had his playoff struggles, you know, last year, but the the OKC year, that kind of bothers me a little bit because, yes, they lost to the Blazers and Paul George kind of struggled on that end of the – or struggled in that series um, or back in the uh, 2018-19 season. His shoulders were so shot. Like, he could barely lift his arms. And yet, you could say that it's an excuse, but it's not. It's reality. If you can't lift both of your shoulders, you are not going to continue to shoot 39% from three like he did that season and then go into the playoffs with physicality, more physicality in defenders, etc., etc., and expect him to keep shooting that percentage. He shot 31% from three that year. His true shooting percentage in the playoffs was at 58.3%, which is still good, and it matched his true shooting percentage during that regular season. But you could just tell he wasn't the same player offensively. And so far, he's looked fantastic. And I'm just hoping that, like I said before, that He is able to be at his best when Kawhi Leonard is at his best because they're just – Paul George is damn fun to watch. I love his offensive game. His handle is awesome. He has the most aesthetically pleasing sidestep three in the NBA. It's just so smooth how he gets it off. Um, 
one of the he's one of the best shooters in the NBA and has been he's been low key one of the underrated shooters in the NBA for a while now. So let's go look at his year since the 2016-17 season. On eight on over if you go from 2016-17 to this season, Paul George has averaged over eight three-pointers per game and has shot 39.8% which you could basically say 40%. He is one of the underrated three-point shooters in the NBA, has turned into one of the underrated, more underrated three-point shooters in the NBA, has had a few years where he has shot 40% from three. And with this handle and his ball handling ability, he's starting to make better reads now. He was never a good passer. Honestly, he makes basic, he always made basic reads and that was it. But now he's doing more, he's doing skip passes to the corner now this year. Averaging a career high by far so far. This is early again. He's averaging almost five turnovers per game. So still leads into, you know, the facts that Paul George is an iffy playmaker at best. At his best, he could be solid. But it's nice to see him up his assist, uh, up his assist percentage and his assist rate a little bit. I'm excited for PG this year, man. And while yes, the Ray, I want to me too. I want to see what he looks like in the playoffs, and it's kind of a show me in the playoffs thing. Even though he's been the best player on a conference, two conference final finalist in his career, this regular season is going to be fun because Paul George, like he said, he was back with his trainer. He had a healthy summer or a healthy off season. I keep thinking summer because you know the season restarted in August, but it still kind of throws me off. But Paul George was back with his trainer. He even said it himself. He's healthy. And like he said, he's on everybody's ass. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that play out throughout the regular season. So those are the few trends for today. Make sure you subscribe to the Sly Hooper podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Hustle. I have a new video coming out on the Sly Hooper YouTube channel. I know, holy shit, a new video. It's been months. But I have a new video coming out uh, the day this podcast drops. So make sure you check that out as well. We will, I will be talking about some of the young players that have made another leap in their game so far this year. Three players in particular. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you for listening. And hopefully we'll have a strong 2020 because <laughs> the bar has been set so low, to be honest, that I just think we're going to have a better year just by positive regression to the mean. But for this podcast and for the Sly Hooper brand, so to speak, you know, we have some, we have a few goals and, you know, honestly, this year has kind of messed with me in terms of consistency and stuff like that. But the content is coming. And now that I kind of got a handle on what I want to do again, with in terms of my YouTube channel, I'm excited and hope you guys are excited for the Sly Hooper brand, quote unquote, this year as well. But enough rambling. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe and we'll tune in next week. Until then, deuces.